0: Thank you, May, for that uh, very generous introduction. Can I uh, thank you, acknowledge per capita, and thank uh, personally uh, Emma Dawson, uh, who uh, is unwell with COVID today, uh, but Emma, you're with us in spirit. Uh, Can I acknowledge too that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation uh, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. John Kane is one of Labor's great heroes. When in 1982 he led Victorian Labor to power after 27 years in the wilderness, the reforms spanned the field, from education to law reform, the environment to open government. This being Victoria, sport was part of the reform agenda too. Kane's government demanded that the Melbourne Cricket Club admit women members and introduce Sunday VFL games. In the early 1980s, Cain's Kane, unleashing of reform after a generation in opposition was a blend of Whitlam and Hawke, with a dash of succession. <laughs> John's father, John Cain Senior, had been the previous Victorian Labour Premier, governing until 1955 when the split destroyed his government. Yet although his father had been Premier, John Cain was not a Labour power broker. Along with John Button and Barry Jones, he was factionally independent. He had seen what divisions in the party had done to his father's government. Like most active Labor Party members today, John Cain chose not to be in a faction. My argument today is simple. The Labor Party needs to provide space for people to remain outside the factional system. Across the country, the power of factions is at an all-time high. We need to ensure that it is a legitimate choice for everyone – new members to elected officials – to be non-factional. To join Labor should be enough. We should not be asking that those who want to make an impact within the ALP must join a subgroup within the party. Factions are fine, but not being in a faction should be fine too. This speech comes from a place of deep love for Labor. I joined the Labor Party in 1991 at the age of 18 because I wanted to be part of a serious movement for reform. Labor turned 100 that year, yet it was the heyday of the Australian Democrats. Some of my friends were attracted to this new party and its policies. But it struck me that if you wanted to be part of a great movement for progressive change in Australia, you needed to join a party that could form government. As I sometimes tease my friends and the Greens party, so who is your favourite Greens Prime Minister? (laughs) For 132 years, Labor has been the central driving force behind a more equal Australia. Ours is the party that produced the Age Pension, Medicare and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Ours is the party of Cain and Curtin, Ran and Whitlam. It is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of policy in Australia is a history of reforming Labor governments, followed by fallow years of coalition inaction. But when I look back at the legacies of the Menzies, Howard, or Morrison governments, I'm struck less by their reactionary changes than by a profound sense of ineptitude, of, of lassitude. These were governments of sleepwalkers, clumsily bumping around in the dark until a new political day finally dawns. The Australian Labor Party isn't just another political party. It's the beating heart of modern Australia. When Labor succeeds, we expand the life chances of invisible Australians. We empower the powerless. Labor plays a unique role in the country. Labor is the generator of ideas and the force of progress. The Liberals and Nationals are uninterested in reform. The Greens are uninterested in governing. Only Labor delivers real change for the nation. I'm proud to be a member of the Albanese government and could happily wax lyrical for an hour about the achievements of our government over the 424 days we've been in office. I've spent my entire adult life a member of the Labor Party and I'll die with my membership in the Labor Party still valid. In this sense, my life is in two phases, childhood and Labor Party membership. (laughs) My bookshelves are filled with books about the Labor Party. I've studied its history and know its stories. I've attended hundreds of branch meetings and I still look forward to Labor events because I know it means spending time in the company of unionists, feminists, environmentalists and social justice advocates, people who joined the ALP to help shape a better Australia. And it's this devotion to Australia's oldest and greatest political party that animates me to, to speak today about something that's almost never mentioned, the role of factions. All political movements contain groups of like-minded people. The United States Democratic Party has its Blue Dog Coalition, the New Democrat Coalition, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. The Republican Party is riven between Trumpists, Never Trumpists and ex-Never Trumpists. (laughs) British Labor has Blue Labor, Momentum and Progressive Britain. Groupings within the UK Conservatives include Blue Collar Conservatives, the Common Sense Group and the Northern Research Group. In Australia, the Liberal Party's groupings have included the Monkey Pod Lunch Conservatives, the Prayer Group, the Modern Liberals and the Ambition Faction. The National Party sometimes splits into the landed gentry versus angry populists, and at other times into social conservatives versus agrarian socialists. The Greens Party is divided into deal-makers versus protesters, which, with large fissures sometimes opening up between its elected members and its large membership base. What marks out the Australian Labor Party isn't the fact of its factions, but the way that they so thoroughly dominate the party. Factions control the national executive and allocate positions in the federal ministry. <coughs> factions determine the agenda of the national conference decide almost all pre-selections, and even choose who will travel on international parliamentary delegations. I've long been interested in the factional system. Back in the 1990s, I was a member of the left faction for about five years and even published a paper titled Factions and Fractions about the system. Tellingly, two decades after that paper was published, it remains one of the very few things publicly written about Labour factions. I'm still not sure why Australian political scientists have devoted so little attention to such an important aspect of Australian politics. Labor's highly formalised factions have their origins in the 1970s. In their book, A Little History of the Australian Labor Party, Nick Darrenforth and Frank Bongiorno argued that in the early 1970s, uh, reorganisation of the Victorian and New South Wales branches was an essential precondition, for nationally organised factions, which solidified in the 1980s. The Hawke-Hayden leadership struggle contributed to dragging many Federal caucus members into one of the power blocks. By the mid-1980s, it had been established that the caucus would elect the ministry by proportional representation, and three national factions, left, centre-left and right, were institutionalised. Over the coming decades, the number of non-factional caucus members steadily declined. In 1984 there were ten unaligned members in the Federal caucus. In 2003 there was about five. In 2010 there were two. In 2013 there were three. In 2016 there was one. Since 2019 there's been two. Meetings of the Federal Parliamentary Independence can easily take place in a phone box. <laughs> Since joining the the Federal Parliament in 2010, I've comprised between 33% and 100% of the (laughs) non-factional members of the caucus. The other big trend of the past generation is the consolidation of the factions from three to two. In 1984, the centre-left faction made up a quarter of the Federal caucus. But as prominent centre-left ministers, John Dawkins, Bill Hayden, John Button, Michael Duffy, Peter Walsh, Barry Jones, Mick Young, Neil Blewett and Peter Cook retired, the centre-left faction waned. After the 2007 election, the centre-left faction essentially ceased to exist. With the disappearance of the centre-left, Labor's factions have become a duopoly. As their power has grown, the factions have become more structured. These are not lunch clubs or informal gatherings. Members are expected to attend factional meetings and vote with the faction. The factions have constitutions, elect factional leaders, take minutes of their meetings and keep membership lists. As Dennis Glover notes, in other social democratic parties around the world, factions are loose and informal. Within the Labor Party, factions operate as formally as the party itself. In the Federal caucus. It goes without saying that most of my friends are in factions. To a person, they're talented, idealistic and hard-working. It would be unfair to them to engage in a straw-man discussion of the factional structure. So let me instead take a steel-man approach by beginning with the strongest case for the factional system. What's good about factions? Well, the first point in defence of factions is that Labor currently stands in its strongest electoral position since the early 1900s, when the newly created Party of the Union movement swept its opponents away in election after election. Today, Labor holds office federally and in every state and territory except Tasmania. Currently, the most senior coalition leader on the mainland is Brisbane Lord Mayor Adrian Schrinner. (laughs) Labor's party officials from National Secretary Paul Erickson down, are driven by data and evidence, and constantly experimenting with new ways of maintaining a thoughtful conversation with Australian voters. In an era of disinformation and distraction, Labor has been successful in persuading Australians to support policies backed by science, evidence and institutions. After decades in which populism has surged across the globe, in Australia it's in retreat. One might argue that factional dominance has played a role in their success. By providing stability to the party, faction leaders would argue, they've helped reduce internal dissent so everyone can focus their attention on electoral success. Full factional control, they would contend, provides a measure of certainty to the institution that allows people to get on with doing their jobs. (coughs) If disunity is death and factions provide unity, then factional dominance should take part of the credit for Labor's electoral victories. Second, the Labor caucus is more diverse than ever before. For all their successes, the Whitlam, Hawke, and Keating governments were largely governments of men. No women served in Whitlam's cabinet, and just one woman served in Hawke's first cabinet. By contrast, the Albanese cabinet consists of 10 women and 13 men. A majority of the caucus are women. With the election of Mary Doyle in Aston, the Labor Caucus tipped over to 53% women. We have numerous members from non-English speaking backgrounds, including Egypt, Sri Lanka, Greece, Italy, Malaysia, India and Afghanistan. Six Labor members are First Nations people, including Cabinet Minister Linda Burney. The share of First Nations people is higher in the Labor Party room at 6% than in the broader community at 3%. Again... Factional leaders would argue they deserve some credit for these outcomes. When pre-selections are considered one by one, underrepresented groups can repeatedly miss out. A failure to consider the big picture helps explain why the coalition parties have just 30% women in their combined party room, about the same share that Labor had in 2001, and why they have only two First Nations representatives. At a national and state level, Labor's factions have helped meet the party's affirmative action targets and been tasked with bringing greater ethnic and racial diversity to the ranks of the party's elected officials. So, what's the problem? Should we worry if factions fully control the party? Is it really necessary for the party to provide space to people who choose not to join a faction? I believe there's four reasons to be concerned about a party that is totally dominated by factions. First, there's now a shortage of healthy competition between the party's factions. When I joined the party, I vividly recall the way in which factions channelled ideological disagreements. New South Wales Labor Party conferences in the 1990s featured feisty (coughs) debates between Graham Richardson and John Faulkner, both of them government ministers. National Labor Party conferences featured debates between Doug Cameron and Peter Cook. These debates weren't perfect, and the sharp edge of the debates probably discomforted some. But they showed everyone it was healthy to have differing views and that the Labor Party was a sufficiently large tent to contain a spectrum of ideological perspectives. They were a reminder that you didn't need to agree with every Labor policy to support the Labor Party. By contrast, though, today's factions are less likely to broker ideological debates than to try and find a way of avoiding the debate altogether. When both factions see it as desirable to find a fix, debate can be viewed as unhealthy. Calling a truce in the battle of ideas is not the Labor way. If we stifle internal debate, we miss the chance to test our policies among ourselves and to train a new generation of thinkers. I think this is what John Button meant when he warned in his quarterly essay that excessive factionalism led to party discussions that were about arithmetic, not philosophy. Those who fear that our opponents will exploit policy differences to paint Labor Labor as a divided party need to remember that robust policy debates also have an electoral benefit, allowing a broad range of voters to see their views reflected within the Labor Party. As the Assistant Minister for Competition, I can't help wondering if part of the problem is what we'd call an increase in market concentration. (laughs) As I've noted, the collapse of the centre-left faction and the decline of non-factional parliamentarians have created a situation in which Labor's factions are now a duopoly. And just as duopolies in the product market hurt consumers through price gouging and profiteering, so too duopoly factions may engage in behaviour that is not in the long-term interests of the party and its membership. (coughs) When factional competition is less intense, deal-making can replace debate. If factionalism becomes effectively compulsory, the party may become less dynamic. Second, Labor's factions can be profoundly undemocratic. Let me give a few examples. In some jurisdictions, Factions require their members to use a show-and-tell approach to internal Labor Party elections. In the room where ballot papers are handed out, the faction sets up a second table, a few metres away from the returning officer. When members are given their ballot paper, they must walk over to the factional table and hand their ballot paper to a factional official. That factional official then fills in the ballot paper and gives it back to the party member to be deposited into the ballot box. This rule applies to all members of the faction, from new members to ministers. Failure to comply can mean expulsion from the faction. The irony of show-and-tell is that historically, Labor was among the strongest advocates for the secret ballot. The secret ballot, known in some other countries as the Australian ballot, was revolutionary because it prevented bosses from demanding that their workers reveal how they'd voted. A secret ballot in public elections effectively forbade show-and-tell. As Peter Fitzgerald observes, show-and-tell would be considered an offence under state and Commonwealth laws if undertaken in, during state or federal elections. No Labor government was to, would tolerate an organisation that set up a table in the corner of the polling station asking people to volunteer to have their ballot papers filled in for them we would see it as utterly undemocratic. Yet we tolerate it in our own internal elections. And then there's the issue of pre-selections. In 2018, Mark Butler spoke to the Victorian Fabian Society about his concerns that reforms he'd championed as party president had been blocked by factional leaders at the National Conference and various state conferences. Mark argued that one of the fundamental rights of Labor Party membership should be to choose Labor candidates. Yet, as he ruefully noted, I'm sorry to say that ours remains a party that gives ordinary members fewer rights than any other Labor or social democratic party I can think of. Mark pointed to particular upper house candidates, which he said uh, remains a last bastion of backroom dealing by self-appointed factional warlords. Labor's candidates for state and Legislative, Senate and Legislative Council should, he argued, be chosen by the membership. Likewise, Mark said, casual vacancies should not be filled by highly centralised factional processes. Mark reserved his fiercest scorn for Victoria, where he described the factional divvy-up of seats, including one that was yet to be created, as backroom buffoonery that does not reflect a healthy party organisation. Just as Labor's factions are at their best when they encourage ideological debate over important policies, they're at their worst when they serve only as competing executive <coughs> recruitment agencies. This is what the Hawke-Ran ALP Review called the deadening impact of factionalism. It's what Kevin Rudd once called the skullduggery of factional warfare. John Cain, too, was a critic of developments in Victoria. He pointed out that many active branch members wanted nothing to do with factions and resented their influence in the party. John Cain also pointed out that structured factionalism meant rigidity in decision-making. In 2009, at the age of 78, Cain again criticised the role of factions in the Victorian ALP, writing that, Historically, the people who run political parties, like all who hold power, are always slow to acknowledge their shortcomings. They fight tenaciously to hold the power they have won. According to one Victorian Labor activist, of 143 pre-selections in their state during the past two decades or so, a mere 10 have gone to ordinary member vote. Again, many talented people have entered the Victorian Parliament during this period. But I'm yet to hear anyone argue that the 10 who were selected by members are less talented than the 133 who were appointed. <coughs> Others argue that central control over Victorian pre-selections has led to a failure to pre-select candidates who generally, genuinely represent their communities, especially in relation to culturally and linguistically diverse communities in the outer suburbs. Underpinning this system is the Victorian Stability Pact. Initially struck in 2006, The Stability Pact is an agreement between the factions in which every winnable seat, every party leadership position and every spot on every committee is divided between the left and the right with a no-contest rule on the other's possessions. Like the 19th century colonial powers meeting in Berlin to divide up Africa, the Stability Pact effectively takes away the ability of local members to have their say. Nominally, the party rules say that pre-selections depend equally on local member votes and the Central Committee. But if the factions vote together, then even a 90% local member vote can be overridden by a 95% Central Committee vote. Allocating electorates to factions is electorally reckless. If the Stability Pact allocates a seat to the right, but the candidate with the greatest community appeal is unaligned or from the left, Labor fails to put our top candidate into the field. The danger is that Labor runs less competitive candidates because the best person is in the wrong faction. In an era in which Greens and Independents are on the rise, we risk losing electoral races we might otherwise have won. Moreover, the calibre of candidates is not the only test of the system. Those of us who love Australia's democracy believe that democracy is inherently better, not just instrumentally. When we look around the world at undemocratic nations, we judge them on the fact that they don't give their citizens a say in how their countries are governed. Even a well-managed autocracy is flawed, we think, to ourselves. We believe in democracy not just because it produces better outcomes, but because it is inherently right to give all citizens a say on how their country is run. Labor's democratic decline alienates party members. Ours has always been a mass party, and we've relied on our membership to win elections. If you believe in the randomised evidence on political campaigning, and who in this room doesn't love a good randomised trial, (laughs) the impact of direct mail and television advertising is dwarfed by the impact of personal contact via in-person canvassing and telephone calls. If you doubt this, just think about your own views. How often have you shifted your view on an important issue because of a letter or an ad, as compared to a conversation? Personal campaigning matters. Labor relies on our membership to win elections. Most Labor members are not in a faction. Their only loyalty is to the ALP at large. In return for helping us win elections, it's only fair that Labor's members should help choose the party candidates. Third, factional dominance creates unnecessary divisions within the Labor Party. When an idealistic and ambitious new member joins the Labor Party, we should harness their passion for egalitarianism and show them a path to contribute. But if we ask them to choose, left or right, then we risk forcing them into an uncomfortable choice. What if you're socially progressive but economically rational? How about if your two favourite Labor politicians come from different factions? If you get your factional choice wrong, can you switch? I've spoken to many new party members who find it disquieting to be asked to pick a team within a team. Often party members reluctantly join a faction because they can't see any other way of contributing. In some states, members cannot serve on the party's policy committees unless they're in a faction. In most states, pre-selection is virtually impossible for people outside the factional system. It's a case of left, right or out. Factionalism can be a particular problem in young labour, where the fierceness of the arguments is sometimes out of proportion to the stakes. In many states and territories, those who don't wish to join a faction quickly find themselves on the margins of young labour. When too much energy is devoted to internal arguments, it leaves less space for engaging with the wider community. Young labour is a vital part of the party, but it should also ensure it remains attractive to people who join and just want to be Labor. Factionalism can also be seen in university labour clubs. On many campuses, there's two labour clubs, one for the left faction and one for the right faction. Eerily reminiscent of the labour split, those clubs are formed because university students have decided that they would prefer not to be in the same room as people from a different faction. What signal does that send to a new student in orientation week? Well, they tell that person that Labour is a party defined by its factions. And if you're not willing to join a faction, you shouldn't join the Labour Party. Those clubs have their own quirky origins, but the fact that they exist on multiple campuses is a reflection of weakness in the party at large. The factional duopoly has left no space for non-factional members. If Labour clubs and young Labour are entirely factionalised, bright youngsters might well join another progressive movement, depleting the talent pipeline that's essential for a flourishing political party. Fourth and finally, factional dominance risks eliminating a tradition with deep roots in the Labor Party, people who simply choose to be part of the party. This is, after all, a majority of our members. As Chifley's light on the hill speech so powerfully articulated, most Labor members join Not hoping for any advantage from the Movement, not hoping for any personal gain, but because you believe in a Movement that has been built up to bring better conditions to the people. These are Keating's true believers. They're people like Jo, a retired teacher who joined me on a street stall in the Canberra cold last Saturday because she wanted to persuade as many people as possible to support a voice to Parliament there are tens of thousands of Labor members who feel uncomfortable with factions or are uninterested in factions. As the discussion paper initiating the Brax-Macklin Review noted, many members believed that factionalism did more harm than good and expressed concern in respect to both the secrecy that surrounds factional groups and the power those groups wield. Members were aware of the stabilising role factions played historically. However, most believed that the current state of factionalism represented a significant problem that needed to be addressed. Most Labor members will never seek a career in Parliament or as a party official. They simply want their party to recognise that a non-factional member of the Labor Party is no less worthy than a factional member of the Labor Party. Non-factional members will never engage in the kind of antics that led to a 60 Minutes expose and an inquiry by the Victorian Anti-Corruption Commission. They would no more dream of using prepaid cards to subvert branch-stacking rules than they would imagine voting for One Nation. On election day, these regular members will staff booths from dawn to dusk. They're motivated not by power, but by altruism. They joined Labor to shape a better nation. They should not be treated as second-class citizens within our party. Preserving a space for non-factional members in the Labor Party shouldn't be a radical idea. For much of our history, Labor has not been a particularly factional party. But if we can no longer welcome unaligned members, it will become increasingly difficult to recruit to Labor. Running a mass membership organisation is hard enough in an age where fewer people are joining community groups. Demanding factional loyalty as a condition of active engagement in the Labor Party is like putting lead in our saddlebags. Why not make it clear that ours is a party that will nurture talent regardless of whether or not someone joins a faction. In conclusion, no social democratic party should ever be sanguine about its future. Between 2009 and 2015, the Greek social democratic party, PASOK, went from being the largest party in the Hellenic Parliament to the smallest. PASOK lost 9 out of 10 of its voters. The collapse of PASOK isn't just a Greek drama. Passofication Pasophica- is how commentators describe the collapse of centre-left parties, including the French socialists, Israeli Labor, the Austrian Social Democrats, the Irish Labor Party and the Dutch Labor Party. One moment, these parties were going strong. The next, they are on the verge of collapse. An especially dramatic case was the French socialists, who went from holding the presidency in 2017 to garnering a mere 2% of the presidential vote in 2022. In Western Europe, centre-left parties in general are in trouble. Since the early 2000s, the average vote of European centre-left parties has dropped from nearly 30% to just above 20%. When the electorate decides that a party has passed its use-by date, the collapse can be swift and brutal. That's why the Labor Party must always renew and refresh our structures and institutions. In 2023, it's worth asking whether a rigid, factional duopoly, in which show-and-tell prevails and in which pre-selections are decided by the few rather than the many, is really in the long-term interest of the party. As a Tasmanian ALP member told the Brax-Faulkner-Carr review of the party, while we continue to allow the factional carve up of positions and decisions taken, are taken on factional grounds, people will continue to be turned off. The success of the Teal independence shows the degree to which Australian voters admire independent-minded candidates. Strong public support for transparency in government and the National Anti-Corruption Commission suggests that the best direction for Labor is to be becoming more democratic, not less. Now, I'm not arguing, as Kevin Rudd did in 2020, for the banning of factions. I'm not even arguing, as John Faulkner argued in 2014, for factions to be banned from binding their members. My argument is much more modest. I merely propose that not being in a faction should be as valid a choice as joining a faction. The silence over factions and the way they operate should be a clue. If a group's practices and deals start to sound like they've been plucked from a John Le Carre novel, those people should ask themselves whether their shenanigans befit Australia's oldest and greatest political party. When it comes to elections, Labor has always been at the forefront of democratic innovation. In general elections, the mantra of Labor is that elites should carry no more electoral weight than everyone else. One person, one vote, one vote, one value. Part of being an egalitarian is the belief that ordinary people should be empowered, that democracy works better than autocracy and that the many are collectively smarter than the few. Those who built the Labor Party were outsiders, not insiders. This essential egalitarian ethos should inform how we think about our own party. There's nothing wrong with people being in factions. Equally, there should be nothing wrong with people being outside the factional system. Remaining unaligned loyal only to the Labor Party, should remain a viable choice. The result will be a stronger, more competitive, more democratic and more effective Australian Labor Party. Thanks very much.